All right, well, we're there in Nehemiah chapter number one. And as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, we're beginning a new series in the book of Nehemiah entitled Rise and Build. And it's not a study of Nehemiah, but we're studying a subject of the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who made an impact. He made a difference in the lives of people. And we want to study those principles and get those ideas of what Nehemiah did to be able to impact people. And if you look at verse number one there of of Nehemiah chapter number one, notice the Bible says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year as I was in Shushan the palace. Now here's what you got to understand. Nehemiah is a Jew, but he is living in captivity. He is there in Shushan the palace. He is, we saw at the end of the chapter there, he's the king's cupbearer. He is not in Jerusalem at this time. Before Nehemiah comes on the scene, we know that there is a king by the name of Cyrus, who we've actually been studying the prophecy of Cyrus in the book of Isaiah, 150, 200 years before Cyrus ever lived, Isaiah you know, prophesied that this king would come who would allow the children of Israel to go back into their land. And Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews in the captivity, anyone who wanted to, to be able to go back to their land. And we know that, of course, Ezra went back to rebuild the temple and different men did those things. And here, uh, Nehemiah is still in captivity. And he's not really in captivity in the sense he's he's living a very nice life. He, He likes his job. He likes what he's doing. In verse 2, the Bible says that Hanani, one of my brethren, so this is one of Nehemiah's brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. Now, Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem, you know, and, and basically what, what's known, to, what we would know today as Israel. And his brother comes from Judah, and I, Nehemiah, asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So, Nehemiah's brother shows up from Judah. Judah, uh, Nehemiah asked him, hey, how are things going in Jerusalem? How are things going in Judah? How are the children of Israel doing uh, when that are back there in the land? Notice verse 3. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity, there is the providence are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. And the gates thereof are burned with fire. So they, he asked for a report and the report is, things aren't good, Nehemiah. The people are in great affliction and reproach. Jerusalem is broken down. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. Things are not doing well. Now, Nehemiah hears of the people's great distress. He hears about the fact that these people are, are under affliction, are under reproach. And you've got to understand, in the days of Nehemiah and in the Bible days, you know, it, it wasn't like today where we've got, you know, the technology that we've got and we've got the military that we have. In these days, the, the wall around the city allowed for uh, protection. I mean, literally, that's how they protected their city was by building a wall around the city to be able to protect against the uh, oncoming enemy. And you've got to understand that protection allowed for security. The reason that people weren't maybe working and the people, the reason that people weren't really moving to Jerusalem, the reason that things weren't happening in the city and things were getting done is because people did not really feel safe in Jerusalem. I mean, there's no point of moving to Jerusalem and starting a business. No point of moving your family to Jerusalem and, and getting a, you know, a family farm going or getting something going. If at any moment, any enemy can come in and take it all away. 
And the people are in affliction, they are in distress, they are upset, they are unprotected. Nehemiah hears of this great distress. And I want you to notice, and we're, not, uh, we're, we're going to be in chapter 1 mainly uh, this morning, but go to Nehemiah chapter number 2, just real quickly, and look at verse number 10. Nehemiah not only heard of the distress of the people, but Nehemiah went and helped the people in distress. Nehemiah chapter number 2 and verse 10, there, there are a lot of verses in Nehemiah that I love. But Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10 is one of my favorite. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite, now remember those names Sanballat and Tobiah, because as we go through the book of Nehemiah, you'll, you'll figure out, you'll realize that these are the, basically these are the villains, these are the bad guys in the story, these are the enemy. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly. Now they heard of the fact that Nehemiah had came. Now notice what it says. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man, referring to Nehemiah, that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Isn't that a great verse? Wouldn't you want it said of you that you showed up in a land, you showed up in a city, you showed up in the midst of a problem, and you were there to seek the welfare of the people? That you were there to help people? And the enemy, the villains, the ones that are oppressing, the ones that are, you know, burdening the children of Israel, it grieved them exceedingly that Nehemiah showed up because Nehemiah was there to help the people. Skip down to verse 17, same chapter. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Now these guys did not just allow Nehemiah to show up and start rebuilding the wall. And we'll see that here in a minute. But you've got to understand these people that Nehemiah was going to help were in distress. They were discouraged. They were upset. In verse 17 of chapter 2, the Bible says this, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come! And let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we may be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, notice, they said, these are the people in distress. These are the people that are discouraged. These are the people that are upset. They said, let us rise up and build. And that's where we get the title for our series, Rise and Build. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this Good work. Go to Nehemiah chapter 4, look at verse 16. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah? Remember the enemy? You've got to understand, whenever you show up to help someone, and whenever you decide you're going to build something and you're going to do something great, there will always be those who oppose you. There will always be an enemy standing against you. You cannot do anything great for God without Satan opposing you without the enemy opposing you, without the world opposing you. And this was true in the life of Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work. They're building a wall. Now notice what he said. He said, half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears and the shields and the bows and the habergians, and the rulers uh, were behind all the house of Judah. Look at verse 17. They which builded on the wall, and they that bear the burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. These guys were building the wall, and in one hand they had a tool, and in another hand they had a weapon. In one hand they had a hammer, and in the other hand they had a sword. And they were building, and they were working, they were building, and at the same time, they were battling. They were fighting the enemy while building the wall. And that's what the Christian life is about. We have been called to build and to battle. 
Our job is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ to help you be used of God, to build the church of God. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he wants to do it through us. But at the same time, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our job is to build and to battle. And here you see the people, they are building and they're battling. Go to chapter 6, look at verse 9. Chapter number 6, verse 9, the enemy again. Chapter number 6 and verse 9. Nehemiah 6, 9, for they all made us afraid, referring to the enemy, saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. And then Nehemiah prays to God, now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And notice verse 15, same chapter, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished. In the 25th day of the, mount, of the month Elu, now notice what it says, in 50 and 2 days, Nehemiah shows up into town, and there is a land filled with people that are depressed, that are distressed, and that are discouraged. And in 52 days, they build a wall around the city. Because a man showed up for, which had a mind to work and he rallied the troops and he cast a vision and he organized and he strategized and he agonized and he prayed and he showed up. Now here's what he said. They strengthened their hands is what the Bible says for this good work. The same people were there at the end of the book of Nehemiah when the wall was built. It was the exact same people that were there when Nehemiah showed up. But here's the difference. A man by the name of Nehemiah showed up. And the men like Nehemiah are few and far between. Because this man showed up and he did not just live. He was not just common. He was not just average. He was not just normal. This man lived his life in a way that impacted other people's lives. And it should be our goal as Christians, as Bible-believing Baptists, we should determine to live our lives in a way when we, where, when we are done, when we are gone, when we have left this earth where people can look back and say, that individual, that person, they impacted my life. They changed my life. They left their mark on my life. They made a difference in my life. We should all live our lives. Now, here's what you're saying. If you're going to live your life that way, you're going to have to start looking outside of yourself. Anyone that you've ever admired... Any autobiography or biography you've ever read, any person you were ever taught of in school, any person you ever tell your children about, I promise you this, it was because they did something to benefit people outside of themselves. And they persevered through great opposition. And they finished what they set out to do. And if you and I are going to live the lives that we need to live in order to be able to impact people, we're going to have to start looking outside of ourselves. See, everyone who makes a difference, everyone who impacts people, they always look outside of themselves. Now, you've got to ask yourself this question. Where does that stem from? Where did that come from? Why did Nehemiah go from a guy living in a palace to having a comfy job with a retirement with, you know, comfortable clothes and, and nice, you know, uh, I'm sure he had nice transportation and all these things. And how did he go from that to deciding that he would change his entire life to impact people, to help people, to sacrifice, to give himself? And you've got to understand, the answer is found in chapter number one. I want you to go back to Nehemiah chapter number one. 
You've got to understand this. And during this uh, series, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Every, every sermon, I'm going to try to give you one question. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I just want to ask you a question. I just want to help you uh, to think of, of, of your own life and to realize what is the impact that I'm making? What is the difference that I'm making? What am I doing to help people, to impact people? And you say, well, what was it that, that Nehemiah, that called him to build the wall? What was it that, that brought him? Because you may be sitting here and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well, I'm no Nehemiah and there's no wall to build today around our city and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to help. I'm not really sure what God would have me to do. And the question is this, how did Nehemiah know what he was supposed to do? Can you get back to Nehemiah chapter 1? Look at verse 2 again. Then Hanani, one of my brethren, came he and certain of the men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto the remnant that are left of the captivity, there in the providence, uh, there in the providence are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, this is Nehemiah speaking, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days. I want you to notice something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when he heard of the distress of the people, before he decided to leave, before he decided to sacrifice, before he decided to do all the great things he did, his heart broke for the people. The Bible says when he heard of the distress of the people, that he sat down and wept and mourned certain days. And you've got to understand this. Nehemiah's heart broke enough that it actually drove him to prayer. Look at verse 4. Look at the last part of verse 4. He wept and mourned certain days, and the Bible says this, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Verse 5. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He, he's speaking to God and he said, I, I, I'm begging you, God, I beseech you. Look at verse 6. Let thine ear now be attentive. He's speaking to God. He said, God, will you listen to what I have to say? He said, let thy ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servant. You know what he's doing? He is interceding on their behalf. He is saying, God... I want to pray. I want to speak to you about this problem of the children of Israel in Jerusalem. He says, my heart is broken and it is driving me to pray for these people. And not only that, it not only drove his heart to pray, but it drove his heart. It broke his heart enough to drive him to get right with God. Notice what it says. Look at the last part of verse 6. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now here's what he's doing. And this is a great tactic for prayer. And you ought to do this in your own prayer. He's praying to God and he begins to quote God to God. He begins to say to God, hey, do you remember God? Look verse 8. He says, remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. He says, do you remember what you said to Moses? Saying, if ye transgress... I will scatter you abroad among the nations. See, God had made a covenant with the children of Israel through Moses, and it was a a covenant that was very dependent 
on their actions. This was not a covenant that represented salvation, but it represented the blessing of God on their life. And he said, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Verse 9. But if ye turn unto me. Here's what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, God, you said, you said that if we transgress against you, you would scatter us. And Nehemiah is saying, that's what's happened. That's why I'm here in Shushan, the palace. That's why the walls are broken down and the city is destroyed. That's why the people are in distress and discouraged and distressed. He says, but God, verse 9, if ye turn unto me, is what you said, and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Saying, God, you said if we get right with you, you would again bring us back and you would bless us. Look at verse 10. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by great power and by thy strong hand. And here's what I want you to understand about Nehemiah. What allowed Nehemiah to live his life in a way that impacted that changed. That wasn't selfish. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about where he lived. It wasn't about how much money he had. It wasn't about what he drove. It was about his life making a difference in other people's lives. And here's what drove him. A broken heart. And by the way, anyone and everyone who ever makes a difference is motivated by the same thing. Their heart breaks and there is a burden inside of them for something outside of them. Do you understand that? It's not about my heart breaks for myself and I just wish I had more money and I just wish I had this and I just wish I had that. But he heard of the distress of other people. It didn't affect them, it didn't, it, him, it didn't bother him, it, it, it didn't ruin him. But when he heard, there was a burden inside of him for someone outside of him. And everyone who ever impacts anyone is driven by a broken heart. Anyone who ever does anything that's, sac- that's sacrificial is driven by a broken heart. And everyone who lives their life in a way that is selfish and self-centered and does nothing for anyone is just simply because their heart has never been broken. At Verity Baptist Church, you know, my wife and I will have conversations from time to time, and and we're not... about this, this type of subject, and, and, and I'm not saying this in a discouraging way, but every once in a while we'll sit down and think, you know, what, what are we doing? You know, are, are we actually making a difference? And, and I, I have a big burden, and, and she has a burden that we want to do something for God. And, and you've got to understand, you know, our church has been around for, in September, it'll be five years, and I plan to be here till I die. You know, as far as I'm concerned, we're just getting started, all right? And we, we plan on impacting this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make a difference. We want to help people's lives be transformed and changed. We want to help people to be able to draw closer to God. Our goal and the goal of my life is to develop disciples. And by the way, our church and our goal here is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if there is one thing that we uh, push around here and one thing that I set out to do is I wanted to pastor and I wanted the Lord to use me to be able to plant a soul-winning church. A church that has a heart for souls. A church that wants to reach people. A church that wants to get out there and do the work, knock the doors, preach the gospel, memorize the verses, learn what you've got to learn, do what you've got to do. I mean, our goal, if there is something we unapologetically emphasize around here, it is the fact that it is our job. If we are imbalanced in any area, it is the fact that we believe it is our job to get out in the community and preach the gospel and get people saved. That's what we're about. 
And once they're saved, baptize them. And once they're baptized, disciple them and help them grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That I'm just sharing with you my personal testimony. The way that I believe God has called me to impact our community. And for you, it may be different. God may not be calling you to start a church. Some of you men, he may be. God may not be calling you to go into full-time ministry or full-time missions. For some of you, he may be. God has something for you. I know that. God has something he wants you to do. I know that. God has something. But for me, God has called me to start a church and pastor a church and lead a church that has a heart for soul winning. But I want you to understand something. That stems from a broken heart. I'd like to tell you a story, and this is not a story I tell often. In fact, I don't know that there's many people in this room that have ever even heard me tell it. Not something I tell publicly a lot. And if it's too personal, I apologize. But many of you know I grew up in a Christian home. I'm thankful for my parents, my sister, my brother. They all come to church here. And I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church. I, I, I've never known anything other than fundamentalism. You know, Bible preaching, soul winning. I've been going out soul winning since I was a little child with my dad. I mean, I think the first time I talked to someone at the door, I was seven years old. That's why I don't really feel that bad for some of you that are so scared to talk to someone. You know, my, my dad made me talk when I was seven, all right? And, um, you know, we grew up in a Christian home, and I'm not saying our, our home was perfect. I don't think any home was perfect, but my parents... They loved God, they were faithful to church, and they did the best they could with us, and I'm thankful for that. And when we were growing up, you know, we, we later on in my life, we went to a, a Christian school, but before we were in a Christian school, I was, we were in public school for probably until I was a sophomore in high school. And my dad had this habit where anytime we brought any kids over from school, he would sit them down and preach the gospel to them. He wanted to get them saved, you know, and of course he, he wanted to see them saved, I secretly thought that he was just trying to run off all my friends, you know, and kind of scare them off. He didn't want, I, I thought, you know, he doesn't want all these kids in, in his house all the time. So he's going to, every time they show up, they get the gospel. So I did my best, you know, because I, I, was, I was embarrassed, you know. I was, uh, I was, uh, I, I thought, man, people are going to think I'm weird. I'm going to be this Bible thumper. You know, I already go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I already have to go soul winning every Saturday with my dad. You know, the whole time I'm praying that I don't knock on my friend's door, you know what I mean? I'm going to hide behind my dad or something. And I would just try to avoid. And my dad and my, my mom and, and my parents would encourage us. They would encourage us to share the gospel with our friends. It was a constant theme. I remember my dad would say, if your friends want nothing to do with Jesus, you should want nothing to do with them. He said, if your friends get offended because you talk to them about Jesus, then good riddance. You don't need them. You know? And that's the kind of home I grew up in. And as I got older, you know, the, the Lord began to work on my heart about wanting to give the gospel to my friends and wanting to see my, my, my friends, you know, uh, come to Christ. And, uh, but, you know, you're embarrassed. You're a kid. You're a teenager. You're in school. And I, I did my best to ignore the, that, to quench that spirit, to kind of just not, you know. And, I, and here's what I would always say. Next time, I'll invite them to church. I'll, I won't give the gospel. I'll invite them to church and maybe they'll get saved there. Or I'll bring them over. And let, I'll let my dad talk to them. Or I'll let somebody else talk to them. But I'll do that next time. You know, I'll invite them next time. When I was 13 years old, we moved. We, I grew up in Hayward, California. It's a beautiful city if you've ever been there. 
It's not, you know, it's, it's real ghetto. And uh, we moved from Hayward to San Leandro, which is not too far from there. And when we moved there, it was when we were transitioning. I was transitioning from sixth grade to seventh grade. And all the kids that I grew up in elementary school, from kindergarten to sixth grade, were all going to the same junior high school. Now I was going to go to a different high, junior high school, my brother and I, uh, where we didn't know anybody. You know? and, and my brother and I, we played baseball growing up that summer. We played baseball for the San Leandro League. And we became friends with these uh, boys who lived down the street from us. Their name uh, were Joey and Jesse. They were the same age as me and my brother. Joey was my age. Jesse was my brother's age. And we became real good friends with them. And we played baseball with them throughout the summer and kind of became friends uh, in, in, in school together. And this whole time, you know, my heart's burdening for my friends. You know, I, I, I want to see them saved, but, but I, I, don't, I, I don't have the courage. I, I'm just afraid. I'm afraid they're going to think I'm weird. And, and I keep saying, well, next time, next time, I'll give them the gospel next time. Or I'll let somebody give them the gospel next time. Or I'll try to connect them with someone next time. And in our school, I don't know how, how school is now, but in our school, we would get off early every Wednesday. We'd get off after lunch. It was a half day. The, the, the teachers had like a training every Wednesday. I remember we got out of school and we walked home. We walked home every day together, you know, where they lived three houses down from us. And they, were, they came to our house, in our house, in our garage. We had a, a basketball thing kind of set up, and we played basketball a little bit. And I, I mean, it must have been God. Obviously, it was God. But I, I felt the prompting of God to just want to preach the gospel. But I was too scared and embarrassed. And I just kept thinking, next time, next time, next time. Well, that specific day, and obviously unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this till later, about two hours later, due to a tragic accident, our friend Jesse died. And I remember going to school the next day, and I didn't know what had happened. I remember going to school the next day. I was in seventh grade. And I remember walking into the hallway. As I was walking in the hallway, the, the, the teacher meeting got out. They opened the door, and all the teachers got out. And I saw that a lot of teachers were crying, and I didn't really know why they were crying. I mean, I was just a kid. I was thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if some of them got fired, you know, or like, why are they crying like that, you know? And as I was walking and kind of making my way to my class, I saw these groups of these kids in, in school, you know, uh, huddled together, and they were crying. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what is going on, you know? And this kid, Jesse, he was, he was a popular kid. He was tall, good-looking, played sports, you know, he, real well-known there. I see these kids crying. I'm thinking, myself, what, what is going on? I remember my friend, Jonathan, runs up to me and he says, he says, did you hear what happened? I said, no, what happened? He handed me a newspaper. I grabbed that newspaper and I see the picture of our friend Jesse there and I began to read it. I said that he died. And I don't, I don't think we were the last people to see him, but we're definitely close to the last people to see him. And you know, my reaction was odd in the sense that I, I, I don't know if I went into shock or what, but like I had no emotion. And I didn't cry I didn't feel anything. I just kind of was numb. And I went through the day, and I just went to my class, and people were talking about this, and there's counselors that are talking to kids, you know, and Joey, who was my age, was in probably all of my classes, most of my classes. And I remember after lunch, we went, I went into my English class. I think we were in, it was junior high school, but we had seven classes. I remember going to my English class, and, and Joey was in one of those classes. Obviously, he wasn't there that day. And the teacher said, you know, I'm sure all of you have heard of what happened to Joey's brother. And they said, you know, we want to do something. We want to write some letters and, and some notes, you know, for their family, just words of encouragement. If you want to, and she handed out these papers, that if you want to write a letter, we're going to get all these letters together. We're going to send them to the family there and give them to Joey and Jesse's mother. And if you want to encourage them, I know a lot of you knew them. And the kids began to write and stuff, and I, they gave me a paper. I didn't really do anything with it. I kind of just stared down and looked at it. Remember, in my, our desk there, the desk was set up to where there was four students. 
And across from me, there was a girl. Her name was Angelica. And I remember Angelica, she started to write, do something. And I remember she said, she said, Roger. She said, doesn't Joey live down the street from you? And I said, yeah, Joey lives just three houses down. She said, I don't want to put this letter in with the rest of them. Because, you know, it may get lost or the mom may never read it. I, there's a message in this letter that, that I think would really help their mom. Would you mind personally giving it to her mom, to his mom? on your way home from school? And I said, sure. And I grabbed the letter. I opened it up, and I, I looked at it. And I don't remember exactly what the words were, but it was something along these lines. It said, I know that you're going through a lot of pain. And she said, but you can take assurance in knowing that everyone who's good, we will meet them again in heaven. I remember when I read those words, I just began to weep. And just cry. I mean, uncontrollably. Remember, the teacher comes up and says, are you okay? Do you need to talk to a counselor? I'm saying, I don't need to talk to anybody. I just, but, and, and I just knew. Because here's what I knew. I was thinking to myself, I, I know what this girl doesn't know. And I know what Jesse probably didn't know. That good people don't go to heaven. Because there is none that doeth good. No, not one. That only those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. And only those that have received the gospel go to heaven. And I remember just sitting there weeping. I mean, I'm just a 13-year-old kid just crying. Because as far as I knew, my friend, who I refused to give the gospel to, was in hell. And I made a decision that day that I would never allow someone to come close to my life. That I would never allow a friend or a family member to get near me without me presenting the gospel to them. Say, Pastor Menes, why do you get up there and you yell about soul winning? You tell people they need to go soul winning. You preach about hell. You try to get us to sign up for these soul winning. Why do you do all these things? It stems from a broken heart of a 13-year-old boy who was too scared to give the gospel and too scared to talk to someone. And here's what you got to understand. Everything you do that impacts someone else stems from a broken heart. So my question for you is this. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? What is there outside of you that burdens you? What is it in your life that it's not about you and it's not about your finances, it's not about your friends, it's not about how embarrassed you are, it's not about anything that has to do with you. But when you hear about it, when you think about it, it breaks your heart to the point where you'd be willing to pray and sacrifice. And here's the key, to do something about it. Because the only way that you can ever live a life that makes a difference is when you figure out what breaks your heart. Can you look at Nehemiah chapter 1 again? I just want you to look at the last, chap- the last verse. Look at verse number 11. Notice what Nehemiah says. He says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servant who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee thy servant this day and grant him mercy. And notice what he says in his prayer. He says, in the sight of this man. And you say, what man is Nehemiah referring to? He said, God, will you give me mercy in the sight of this man? You say, what, what man, Nehemiah? And then and I love how Nehemiah chapter 1 ends. It just ends with this statement. For I was the king's cupbearer. Here's what Nehemiah was thinking. I will use everything in my power my resources, my position, who I am to do something about what breaks my heart. 
So this morning, I just want to ask you a question. I just want you to mull it over. I want you to think about it. What burdens you outside of you? What breaks your heart? Is there anything that you are worried about, that you are burdened about, that isn't you? That isn't your bills or your relationships or your finances or something that affects you? What breaks your heart? Because here's what I know. People who live a life who make a difference, that stems from a broken heart, from a burden inside of them that's outside of them. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.